On Monday, I went into the school, and all was there, and all the teachers, and I said, I'm going to climb the highest mountain in the world. And everybody by the dog laughed at me, going, ah, what's the boy from Mary Barcroft ever going to, you get nowhere, and even the teacher going, at least you've got a good imagination, Bannon. I never felt alone once when I was on the mountain, even in the darkest hours. And I just felt, you know, on me, you know, I remember looking around, the goggles and all, and the thing, and the 31st of May, I was the last person on the mountain, number one, the highest person in the world at that time. <laughs> and I looked over at the Tibetan plateau, and I could see the, the curvature of the world, and I thought that was a myth. That, my friend, is Banjo Bannon, and this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Robbie Marsh here, I'm your host, and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we sit down with the second person from Northern Ireland, Summer Everest. It's quite a colourful charge podcast, so if there are any kids about, be warned that there are a few curse words thrown out. Banjo is a great, compelling storyteller, and to be fair, I was just engaged throughout the podcast with the real story of Everest unfolded. I have to say, I really enjoyed recording it. By the end of it, I felt like I had climbed every step with Banjo. It was quite a long podcast, so instead of cutting it right down, I decided to split it into two episodes, with part two being released next Wednesday. Before we start, I'd just like to give our sponsors Bond a Runner shout out. Their next race of the Winter Series is in Antrim Castles Garden on the 2nd of February. This is race 7 of 8, it's hard to believe, but it's a beautiful course, so I hope to see you all there. With great pleasure, I give you the true story of Everest from Banjo Bannon. Have you always sort of done, worked in the fire station? No, I, I, my, I started off fitter welder by trade. And then from there, I, my part-time job was working at Shannockmore, and that's how I got into the mountains. You know, Cologne and Shannockmore. Yeah, I was brilliant. one of the youngest instructors. You had to be 21 to be an instructor years ago, and I was 18. So that's how you got into mountains? That's how I got into it. How, like, your real name's Terence. Yeah. Does anyone call you Terence, apart from your parents? Oh, uh, yeah, that's it. And Lauren calls me Terence when uh, she wants to be annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so where did Banjo come from? It actually came from the boxing. I, I boxed when I was younger. I suppose uh, a guy called Tommy Jones. And as you know, politically, economically and socially, I was born in the 60s, so the 70s, the, obviously, it kicked off the political and things. So to keep everybody out of trouble... They try to get everybody in the sports and stuff like that. My mom was in the big in the community, um, and community organising. So Tommy Jones used to take about, I'd say fifty at a time. Wow. See, you look back, there was huge numbers, yeah. and I just got into it. And then it went from training three days a week to five days, and it sort of kept it did keep us out of trouble, like. Yeah. Because then you can divert your energy into something positive, you know, and stuff like that. There's quite a lot of that back then as well, wasn't there? There was a lot of community. So, and if you're in the Gaelic or in the football and the soccer, and they just try to get in the sport. And I just like the, the boxing. Now, when I look back now, if I see all the friends that I grew up with, all the boxers remain fit to this day. And all the guys who played football and their Gaelic and all the rest ended up retiring at 27 or 30 and became obese or 
you know, rolled back and talked about their things. But everybody I knew from that box club, I'd still see them now running past me, doing triathlons, doing bits and pieces, you know. Why do you think that is? You think there's a, there's a strong discipline in boxing? You think yes, that's what it is? and a good ethos about it's like when you trans, you know, it's the transformation from must go to school and say if you go to the tactical, you can do so if you wish. And it's what you put in, it's what you get out. You can bluff anywhere along the way yourself, but once you go into the ring, you realise that you hadn't put yeah. the effort in, and that's why you get paid right. And so <laughs> the more effort you put in training, the less you know, uh, you're know you going to get paid around the ring. So it was a good ethos. And plus it, the discipline. The plus discipline was, here's what you're going to do, and here's your structure. You're going to run, you're going to skip, and then you're going to do circuit training. And that just is for mm. the rest of your life, you know. And like this, like Gaelic's a great base sport as well, but sometimes maybe lacks a bit of that as well, doesn't it? Like that's it. I think you can get you can get away. You can get away with it. It's a team sport. Yes, though, a it? team sport, <laughs> and boxing's for individual. Yeah. So when there's nobody else there, it's just you in the ring. You can hide behind team sports. You know, say somebody's got a real great skill. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Boxing then was, well, it's you against it. And that's so it. when did you sort of get a flavour then for the mountains? And you talked about working at the outdoor centre in Cullowan. What age I, were you then? I was about 14, 15. Well, wow. it started with my sisters were in the community centres and years ago they would have taken you away to the likes of Shannockmore in Cullowan. You know, the education mm. library boards at the time. And then, as like... When we think of it, I might have grown up around Neary, but behind Neary there was Kamla and Sleeve Gullion. Yeah. And nobody was tapping in them, only myself. I saw myself, you know, looking up at them and just, you know, just going and wandering around the forest myself, you know. Mm. And when you look back, you go, geez, I was only about 10 or 11 then. And <laughs> I wouldn't let our kids go out of my sight at this stage again, but that's the, what, yeah. the way it was years ago. And then from there, it was... A big thing changed around for me is then when I got the sleeve gullion. I remember getting up there with cousins and stuff like that there. Because my mother came from Clog. And I remember one day we all went to sleeve gullion and there was no big, you know, big drive there. We just walked straight up. There wasn't along the path and stuff like that there. And I really loved it. You know, looking around in the scenery and the, I suppose the open spaces and the escapism from what was happening around you. And... Plus, there was a, a quarry there, Thompson's Quarry, and there was a big crack line in it. And I looked at it, and it's a good, say, 100 feet. And I remember getting up it and being scared, but feeling great, and getting up and went, that was great. And then everybody looking at me going, well, what did you just do there? I went, sure, everybody can do that. And I was the only one who could do it. Some went, say, about four, four to six feet off the ground, and then the whole panic, no. Yeah. Then I went, maybe I have a nice for something, you know, in, in life. And and then I that's when I get into the climbing more, you know. It's beautiful up there, though, isn't it? I remember the Twin Peaks um, race that Bitsy oh, was I, doing. Oh, yes, yeah. And I went up to the top of Sleeve Gullion Mountain. And I was waiting for the runners to come. I was going up to take photographs. And that'd be Marshall and I was just going up to take photographs. And I sat an hour on my own. Yeah, waiting. and you can just... But there's such a backdrop. Yes, overlooking. And it's amazing. You know, South Armagh, you're overlooking yeah. that direction, not the seaside of it. Yeah. 
just to have the peace and have that. There is tranquility, yes, yeah. And you, you are up, up very high up there, actually, aren't you? Like, you'd yeah, yeah, surprised, oh, yeah, like, yeah. Seven hundred meters off the but ground. It's just to have that peace and that a little element of achievement as well, like you know, just thinking, wow, because life's so busy now. Just to get up there and it's the that's headspace. it. But what I love, you can see the morns and the coolies, and then you can see way down the Sugarloaf Mountain in yeah. Wicklow. Like, and then you can look across in Strangford Lake, Lock, you know, coming in, you mm-hmm. can actually see it from there. And then, like, there's a whole 360 panorama, and I just went, that's class, you know. Because there's not many people, even now to this day, utilise them, like, is it, really? You You'd be there. surprised how many locals would say to me, I've never been up there. If I take them up for the first time, say I'm taking their children up, and sorry, like, I would do the odd bits of our youth work years ago, and they would say, my daddy would love to have done this here. Yeah. And even though he was a farmer and he worked there or they lived there, they never just claimed it. It just wasn't in there. Seg- and obviously now it's a big change around this. So climbing's something slightly different though, isn't it? Like it's, it's yeah. like a well, skill. Climbing's that wee bit more exciting. So I started then and I suppose the big thing for me is I'd said I wanted to climb the highest mountain in the mornings and everybody laughed in my class. I must have been about 14 at the time, so I was in secondary school. And I remember getting a bus and just enough money to get to Castlewell. Because I thought, <laughs> how to get to the mornings, you have to go to Castlewell and, and then you get to change the bus to get into Newcastle. So I summed it from Castlewell into Newcastle and then I saw Donard. And I remember it only took me about an hour of a walk from the car park. Well, I, I ran it. It was an hour, hour and a half to the summit. I looked at my watch and it was still early. I went, I think something else. And I remember coming to the call. I remember it well. Now, this must be in the, the 80s. Was it even? Yeah, it would have been early, early 80s. Early 80s. Um, and seeing an old farmer. And I also remember he had a tweed jacket. You know the PVC jacket yeah. on? With a bit of tweed twine holding together. And he was a sheep farmer. I remember meeting him and I went, where does this wall take you? He says, oh, you follow that wall, it'll drop all the way down and you'll see sleeve, or what do you call it, um, Spelgadam. And I says, how'd you get the Restriver from there? He says, go over the net. Why don't you go down there, there's a thing called Deer's Meadow. And there's no <laughs> Deer's there, fella, don't be looking for any Deer's. He goes, just keep following the wall that direction there and then I'll take you out riding Restriver. And I did it. You know, the wee bits and piece, but you don't, you don't know... Anything, really. How did you feel then when you got at the end of that, like, and you got home well, the evening? I, I, toast, it, was a whole, it was a whole scenario. I remember getting in the Restriver because even then it was getting a bit dark. It was the summertime, it was getting dark, that's so why I knew I was in trouble. Like, so I remember getting in the near and getting up to the house. My mom was frantic, where are we all day? And I had to tell her, you know, I was going, I was in the morning, she wouldn't believe me. Like, and she's, oh, there was a search party out for you. Like, and I says, Ma, if I told you, I wouldn't believe you. And that's the way we left it then, you know, because she thought I was telling a load of lies. But see, from that, the next, so that was the Saturday I did that. On Monday, I went into the school and all was there and all the teachers. And I said, I'm going to climb the highest mountain in the world. And everybody bought the dog laughed at me, going, ah, what's the boy from nearby Barcroft ever going to, you get nowhere. And even the teacher going, at least you'd get a good imagination balling. You know what I mean? And that was it. And that's why I would tell people, and I look back, 
and the teacher they even said to me went I remember you saying that and like nobody nobody mm. ever thought and I had a roadmap for myself then I knew yeah. that was it and then when my sisters did the they were doing the youth work and then the youth work brought me into the canoeing and the climbing and the excitement and then I got picked I did a, an aspirin mountaineer at the age of 15 and then at 16 they were given bursaries and you had, there was two bursaries a year for the library boards and it was me and a guy from Lurgan we were picked to go to Outward Bound Lock Eel. that's where I saw my first fat fatality it was the third week and we were up a ridge line, the Anagiga Ridge, and there was 10 of us. And at that stage, the first week, you had a two-day. It was a day and a half, so one night over. The second week was two nights and three sort of days. And then the next one was your three big expedition on your own. And you're being shadowed. What age were you then? 15. 15, 15 coming on 16, yeah. Um, and must have been... 1984, 85, can't mind which year, 84 it was, 1984, and we were coming up, and one of the boys had slept, and I'll always remember, he had a frame, he was, he was called James, Richard Dean, but his name was James Dean, James Richard Dean, oh, you know the way, James yeah. Dean, and the boys used to scoff him and all, and he had a, the old frame rucksack, you know, the, yeah, the aluminium one, well, he slipped down on a bit of grass and he just went, Phew. and he, it was like, when he slipped back way, sort of sideways, he just slid down the scree and the grass, there was a wee bit of grass and he just took off. We just saw it. Swing round, stop showing up and then, way out. And that was the end of him, boy. But at that stage, we, yeah. I always remember his face because I was the one, it was, you know, everybody's taking turns and some of the boys hadn't got a clue about map reading mm -hmm. and I love maps. As one thing, wasn't great at mathematics or you know academic but I love maps I love right, reading yeah. my you know that whole thing and about the whole it's such a lost art like isn't it it's such it a is but years ago like when I was, when <clears throat> I get into the Shannon Moore the, the instructors I says should blindfold us take us up one of the mountains give us a map and compass and we have to make our own way mm. back and I loved that from an early age from like 13 like 14 15 I was in that and um so I love the map and I love the big thing and the, you know and that's you and the elements and you reading from map to ground and all that there and that's why I still love that to this day yeah. and I still I don't take a GPS man but and I don't want if I'm doing my winter skills I don't want anybody with their GPS I let them have uh, an altimeter and a watch running but I don't want GPS as such mm. because yeah, I want old school compass and old school and the map. It's like I I was up a mountain there and the fog come down. At yeah. Christmas time, and I was lucky I did have a phone, I didn't have a map with me. It's a mountain that I go over all the time. Yeah, I literally did not know where I was at. I just, yeah. it's a, it was a simple walk, it was only a five mile walk, it's about two miles at the top of the mountain, and it's a straight line. And um, there was no path, it was just going over the heather. And I did not have a clue where I was going, so I went to Google Maps and was able to touch a quarry. Right, and it was Pigeon, it was Pigeon Mountain, like how simple uh, yeah. can you get? But, but there is a Oh, the shit drops, eh? So I had to make sure. All of a sudden, I just sat down and was right. And I made it to the quarry and my phone died. And oh, that's wow. that's the danger that you have that's when it. you're up there. If you, yeah. if you don't know how to use a compass and a map... That's it. And you're doing proper, that was not that was a very small Yeah, walk, yeah. Like. And, the, and the batteries go... Because <clears throat> batteries will go in the cold, as you know. Mm. 
and then you're a land and then say your compass you don't have your compass then you're in the mob work that's why I take two mobs in case one blows away in the wind but it's knowing your journey what you're going to do that day and have it in your head and I tell people have a rough direction where they're going in case something did break see the compass was compromised because of the phones these days again yeah. flipped and the map's blown away so that in that in your mindset before you take off that you have a general direction of where you're going people say oh you need a compass I say, well even in a bad day you can see roughly where the sun is mm. the sun comes up in the east during midday it's in the south and it sets in the west it's dead fucking easy it's not rocket mm. science you know and that simple way of doing that and then that day a quick look at the forecast to say the wind's coming from the northeast and i know sometimes you're if you're in mountains it'll blow around sideways but when you're on the top you have a general idea and look and farmers give me these heads up about different types of cloud you know your nimble cleanliness yeah. and all this and you, you will start reading what's in front yeah. of you and stuff like that there and it's an art that's being lost you know what i mean because exactly. everybody's reliant on the front it's very like the look ahead of me and going right you know the way you can see the cloud and you rough guess how fast that cloud's going mm. and then the higher cloud to see how fast it's going you have a general idea you know the average speed's about 20 to 20, 25 miles up high and then you sort of bring it down and you have a general idea of the direction of the wind the wind's in your face and it's reading the road in front so if i say look I want you to take from me there to there. Well, before you go, what did you say in the man? Oh, I, I you, you should be able to handrail. Say there's a river. Well, there, the river's just like having a handrail yeah. right now. You might just light it up. There's a river. River's on your right. So when you get messed and turn round, thing is the river on your right, and is it flowing that way? And if it's not, well then mm. you're in the wrong. You it's know, it's very what I mean? familiar, like to. I told you earlier on, I go out fishing, I take the kayak yes, out, yeah. I go two miles offshore, but I know the currents, I know yes. it's the spring tide, um, You'll have a general how, idea. how yes. strong it is, I know the weather, because if the, what direction is it coming off the land or not, and I, I know if there's rain going to come in, because all those things, all those factors will push the waves up. Oh, I, Do you yes, know what I mean? Yeah, the wind yeah. goes against the tide, and when the tide changes, you know, I know the wind's going to rough it up a yes. bit, because yeah. you're getting a change in the tide. It's very similar to that because you're actually connecting Six with, with the outside world of what's going on. And I'm always safe out there yeah. because I understand it and you, you become part of it. Yeah. And you, you can read all the signs. There's never any moment I'm at risk out there. Yeah. Too, and you have to be that way because you're too much. You have to be. And I love wide out in the Cairngorms. It's blowing a hoolie and it's snowing and people are looking at you. And yeah. I see two foot in front of me. And people are panicking. And you know there's cliffs in this area. There's cliffs and there's big cliffs and you're going mm-hmm. over them and all. And that's when you have to be switched on by an went Because you can tell people blah, blah, blah. And then say, okay, did you do your homework? How should people sort of, what should they do to prepare themselves before they go, they go up? And what type of kit should they have? Just on the <laughs> basic level. So you should, you should know where you're going. You should know your course. That's it. You should, should have a basics. You should really have a map, like yeah. you should have a compass. The right footprint, like how many people did you pass? Well, I know I, but it did stop a few people wearing, like, like high heels. I stopped the girl at Eastern Europe 
where was she going like and it was raining too high heels on and she said I want to go to I said stop now stop <laughs> I said it's okay here but the path's very hard and something happens you know didn't well, that, high like, heels jeans tight jeans the yeah, whole yeah. everything that you would tell anybody ever arrived to me say groups I used to help out with, with the community and say I'm helping them out and say a busload of kids come off and we're all taking around any kid that's got jeans isn't going Bottom line, they might have got these, but uh, and I usually want something around their ankle. But if they don't, you can get away with goddies and just keep to the path. But see, anybody with jeans, it's a yeah. big no no, or cotton t shirts, the just, basics just of life. Like and warm, well, once they get cold, like. they just take them the, the air out of you. Ah, uh, and you see, like, what, what do you mean now they take the air out of you? So I know they get wet and heavy, and so jeans will shrink and they'll okay. never dry quickly. They're not. They're non-dry. That's what they're designed mm. for the outback and the and the horse riders. You know, for their yeah. leathers and all. But that's all they're good for. They're not good for wet. Mm. Once they're out, they restrict. And I think it's a wee girl there from from Mahara or something. She actually lost her legs because she was in the cold. Wow. She wore tight jeans one night. She was out partying and she actually lost her two legs. And that's socialising. Yeah. And if they got drunk and next morning the restriction line was raining and it, it takes the you know the way radiate see if i have my skin exposed sunshine there's that glow around it but you know what wind chill wind chill is only measured to your skin so once wind is blown on it and it's a cold wind that insulated that heat radiate is gone yeah. so now it's gonna end you then that's taking all that away so that's why you lose it very quickly, like won't yeah, you? Yeah, if it's five degrees and the wind touches it, it's not five degrees anymore, it's now three degrees mm. or two degrees, you know what I mean? Because it goes down the degree and obviously every thousand feet you go up, you take one centigrade off. That's the way that sort of the, the work okay. it, you know? And in the morning, you know, there's what, 15 summits, six summits are over seven um, hundred metres. You know, it used to be the sad and sad and now it's the big six, isn't it? <laughs> I was only discovered recently. Me more, you know about that, don't you? Yeah. Me more, I suppose Lokland saw it, looked, oh, that must look bigger and then one's called Bjorg Muir, more meant big and Bjorg means small or whatever. And then they realised that's only six, nine, two. <laughs> that was only, that's only, that's not too long ago, three or four mm. years ago, wasn't it? You didn't actually hear that, like so. Yeah, it's, it used to be called the Seven Summits. It probably still is, but it's not. Seven, seven. Seven, yeah, seven. Seven, seven over 700 yeah. metres. And now that's a, that's a myth. <laughs> now it's only six, nine, eight. I love scoffing the bikes. But I see bikes going up and down there. Like, I met a guy going up the other day with an Aster bag and a pair of shorts on. Yeah. He was on his own. And that's what you're up again. You're fucking, you go, really, like, mm-hmm. in this day and age, like, people, th- I think, it's mundane, they're rounded, and people go, they're all, they underestimate the morns. And you know yourself, yeah, yeah. I've been in the morns by, I go, I go, my tooth's out getting frostbite. I'm pulling the jumpers on, I'm realising I had a pair of socks in my, you know, next to a pair of socks and taking socks off and putting them on my hands for gloves. Well, I, I went up Donald there in September time, and I went to film my daughter, and I literally couldn't. Like couldn't my, move the I, finger, did The it? iPhone, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work for me. I couldn't touch, I was touching the buttons. It was coming, I just had no, 
Yeah. And that was in September time. And it was actually a lovely day. And I actually couldn't use the phone. I had to come down and wait for my hands to warm up a bit. And it was, I was at the Harris Gap before I could actually ring. Kit, well, kit's yeah. really important. I went up. Um, I could do it inside. I went up Binion last week. And it was eight o'clock at night. And it was zero degrees. But I had like the full kit. So I had a mobile phone. I had an old Nokia, which lasts for two two weeks. Oh, wow, yes. I've got, one, I've got an old one too. They're brilliant. Like the iPhone can oh, die on you very, very quickly. Yeah. And if you've gone over on your ankle or something and somebody's looking for you, you know, I had two head torches I had. Um, I did have a foil blanket, although somebody's shown me this fiber blankets, yeah. which are brilliant. I've got one of those on the wall. I've got one. Um... But somebody said to me the next day, who goes up was, you know, a Mourinho top I yeah. was wearing, a good oh, Mourinho Mourinho's class. And I was roasting going up the mountain, but I also had a spare one in my backpack, yeah. in a plastic bag. It was a beautiful evening, there was no clouds, I knew there was no weather coming in, but I carried the kit anyway. And I had this debate with somebody working the next morning, they were saying, no, you definitely shouldn't have went up there. But they go up in the evening, he says, there's two or three of them. Yeah. But they don't have the kit, they don't, I know they don't have any Yeah, kit. they're not, they're not bringing so anything what, back. What I'm saying, what I was trying to bring across was, yeah, okay, I was on my own, I would have rather been with somebody, um, but I wasn't, but I had a full kit. Yeah. Um, but actually... I was safer than you three together. Oh, Cause absolutely. Because you're actually risking everybody else up there. Because if you go over yeah. on your ankle, then all of a sudden all three of you have got decisions to make. Yeah, that's Because none of you are prepared. And actually all three of you are at risk. Yeah. Whereas I had, I knew I was going to be warm. I could have sat out the whole night, if need be, with the kit that I had. Yeah. And whereas if you go over on your ankle or anything, what are your two mates going to do who are now getting really, really cold? Exactly. And they're yeah. there and they might be getting hungry or whatever. Do you leave them? Yeah. Don't get help. What, what do you do? We are very lucky in the mornings that we have phone signal. That's it. And yeah. at the end of the day, once you're down, you come to the path and there's three houses dotted all yeah. over the place and everybody has. But most people have a mobile phone these days, you know. But you just have to watch, like make sure your phone is fully charged going up there. That's how it goes and right saying, doesn't it? It's usual. It sounds scenario. simple. It sounds simple, but you know. So well, that's what um, going to Everest then, because the first time you went to Everest was in what year was that? Ninety three. Ninety three, that was the first expedition. And that was the first is it Dawson, is it? Yeah. What called you guys? So I met Dawson in ninety one, ninety two, I think it was ninety one. I was doing my rock climbing award. So there's two awards then. There was the single pitch and then your multi pitch. So I met him ninety one, nineteen ninety, to do that at uh, the Mountain Centre, and then he was talking about that that he was going to Everest, you know, and I went, I want to be part of that there, and he was saying, yeah, well this is going to happen, and um, I already talked to Ian Ray. Remember all the boys? It was a big fallout in Irish mountaineering, um, and my uh, Michael Luff. No, Ma- Manus Lou, Manus Lou was in 1989, I think it was, where you had all the best climbers from all over Ireland. You had Dawson Stelfax and you had Frank Nugent and Mike Barry and all them guys there on Dawson's side. And then you had Ian Ray, you had, um, what do you call it? Your boy Tara and um, Calvin Torrens from the Shank and all who's living in Dublin and all. So all these top climbers. 
and nobody wanted to be the Indian. Everybody wanted to be the chief, and apparently they all fought with each other. And it was internal fighting, and it was a big Politics. so the, the, yes, and it all everybody had a big split. So in and all them boys sort of had a breakdown with Dawson and Calvin Thomas had a big breakdown and all. So they all split. So the boys went to Everest and the other boys went to K2. And that's, <laughs> that's the way it sort of ended up, you know. And Dawson picked his eight that agreed with him. And that stage I had nothing to do with it. All I wanted to do was part of the track team. He says, look, not going to be, you're not going to be part of the climbing team. You're going to be a tracker, like just. So I was right here. I just wanted to fulfill a dream here. Yeah. This is my stepping stone going even to get there. And then I said, look, if I feel good, how far am I going to go? And of course, he was going, I should go. If you're feeling good, you can go all the way, you know. But he was saying a tongue in cheek. But I took it as, yeah. I, that's it. I was 23 at the time. And when I went, it was 25. So I got more experience then because when that was happening, I went. I was doing loads in Scotland ice climbing. I was went to the Alps and I went to all these uh, places. You know, that was um, fabulous too. Like that was. Oh, the Alps was amazing. Yeah. The Alps just opened my mind. Like my first day in the Alps, I got a lift to. There was lorry drivers from here. There were more stream boys from Ballyhoe, <laughs> and I went over to my says, "Can you used to give me a lift?" To Shannon, and you know the Mount Blanc tunnel. Yeah. It was open, and boys said, "Ah, we drop, we can drop you off there, and all you have to do is pay the lorry driver twelve quid for a dinner on the brilliant ferry." And I went right dead on. So I, I says, "You can give him a hand putting on the pallets and the mushrooms and blah blah blah." So went over with this boy, and he he was already from Neary, like now living in the point, and he dropped me off then at in a place called Chamonix at this stage I didn't really know what Chamonix mm. about and all in the air went down to the campsite and got into the campsite and looked around telling you know looking for somebody to climb nobody there everybody's doing their own thing and I went I can do this myself then and then Kevin Quinn gave me the heads up how to do it go to the hooches you get the cable car and all so I soloed it jeez I, I, that might block then yeah I did that when I was 20 20 or 21. Oh, that's fabulous. I, and it was amazing because I remember, I'd, I'd, like when I look back, I'd, my rucksack was too heavy on my gear with big Koflak books, boots, <laughs> you know the big huge heavy ones, huge bag that you didn't, you could put, you'd be there for a, a year with all the equipment that I had, just too much. And uh, I remember getting up, um, Kevin was telling me the whole route, he gave me the whole route, what to do and how to do it. And to a T, it was, you know, correct. The only thing is, when I got up the, um, you go from the hooches and then there's a train up to the glacier and then you go to the glacier, there's like a big V-diff climb all the way up to the top of the Gute Couloir. And that's where a lot of people get killed. And there's a cable line. And you clip on it and you run across it and hopefully the stone doesn't hit you as it's flying down and just keeps falling. And I remember going, I, when I got there, <laughs> there was too many people on the cable and I just went sure running and I said, you know, and the big rocks I come in, people. And you could hear wee stones flying down. That's what sort of clips you and hits you and knocks you off or goes through the head. Um, 
got it and then as I halfway up I heard somebody getting hit and there was a whole big melee and there was a helicopter coming in front but at that stage probably Sean you'll be alright yeah. I got the good they had no places I went no 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 but I need somewhere to stay and all um, and because I didn't have a tent I had a stove and all I mean the whole no 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 and the French were really abrupt no <laughs> and I went no but how do you do it and, yeah, and they were pushing me out and then there was a guy come over and he says, there's another place called the Fallet Hut. You go up there, but it's an emergency shelter. It's made of aluminium. But you can stay there. And I went, right, brilliant. When I started making it, it was dark. It was cold. Thing. Rucksack was too heavy. And I had to run. And I had altitude sickness. But I didn't realise that. And so, you know the way nobody had said to me about acclimatisation and this and that. I just... Arrived in the, the you know, the the lorry, get off it, camped there the night, <laughs> got all the perfection the next day, and so the second night, I'm gone, like up the night, and like blind. <laughs> and you look back, you go, all the big nose, and my head was busting, and I remember... You wouldn't really you know, even known about altitude. No, I, then, I, I wasn't sort of, it wasn't a big, you know, I remember my head being like, and I did hear people talking about altitude sickness, but... I didn't realise I was suffering. I remember just my head, my stomach, and I managed it. I sort of pushed my will myself on. I was talking to myself and will myself on to the fallout hut. I remember Francie getting in the fallout hut and I just wanted to lay down, and the whole place was packed. You know, and I got oh, fucking. I wanted to, I needed to drink, and I got the snow and pouring the snow and trying to drink it. it was like I once opened it and yeah, shut the door. You know this thing. So I had to shut the door in the cold then, drinking then. And I remember um, a lad in the goodie had given me an aspirin. This is my headache. And he'd give me a few tablets. They were uh, aspirin or paracetamol, one or two. And he, so it sort of eased me. And then I remember going in and nobody would move for me. And I remember just going, starting up and just going. <laughs> and people giving me the elbows and legs. You know, the, which nobody would give you the time of day. They're all maybe uh, feeling the same when they get up. Yeah, <laughs> and nobody had wanted to move. And I remember just out like the light. There's loads of snoring. But I remember then the next day, everybody, you could, no sooner was I down, everybody was making their way up. And I said, come on, you know the way you, you're really totally exhausted. But then um, I managed to get up and people were, I was getting excited. But the good thing is that all the hard work done, so... The, the next route is I just followed head torches then. And then I get on to the boss's ridge. And I'll always remember this really well. But you know where you get talking to different lads as they're going up. And obviously there was guys there saying, look, leave most of your stuff in the folly hut. And I was afraid, you know, they, yeah. I don't want to leave well, anything. Have. You know, somebody might stay and says, no, 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 no. Believe me, nobody wants to carry anything. Your, all your stuff, leave it here. Because nobody wants to just take... Small rocks and maybe your drink and ice axe and your rope and whatever and I did that then and right enough made a huge difference then mm. and I remember going up the boss's ridge and I was talking to these two English lads and they were going sure if something happened should be all right I just no I'm determined now that I've near enough done it I can solo this you know and um, I always remember going up and. The two English lads that I'd seen, it's a way, way on ahead. And this French guy, he had two clients, or one, he had two clients on a row. 
and he just remember got and he just pushed these two boys and one of them fell down the boss original boy had to self-arrest him what the fuck's going on there and that's you know shouting yeah. big beer i remember i was on my own and i was going <laughs> i would see that and people were going you know and so when this guy was coming down and he was sort of like you know when people had to stand aside him and i went i can't stand either side of him because you're in a nice sort of edge ridge and i was a bit scared and i'd always remember he came down <laughs> and i got my ice axe out like this and he went well, no, no, no. and i just remember <laughs> and he went, what? He went, and I was the guy, and if his thing, and your boy was the front going the got there, and I went, I'm not moving, I'm on my own. I said, I'm telling you now, the first boy comes near me, I'm going to take you with me. Well, he, whoa! So I remember he had to stand on the side, kicked in, got his two clients to kick in, and then. So I remember going up and he said something and I went, yeah, and he was like, yes, and he was shouting all the way up. And I always remember getting the top to him, he's probably going, you did fucking, you're the man. And, I, and he says, you're only messing. I says, I wasn't only messing. Because if I got, I fucking shit myself. And this big French guy, very ignorant. And it's the first time I sort of yeah. got that going, you know, people are talking about the Germans or this thing. French, he was desperate. And I went, it's just because you're not yeah. expecting it when you go to these places. No, it's just get out of the road. It's just like yeah. pushy. You're, and I didn't like that because every like round any time I climbed anywhere, I was in Scotland, I was in Wales, and was everywhere. Everybody's curious and they want to help yeah. you, and they want they want to tell you the route, and they want to say here you need to do this. Now there it was just, and that was the first time I saw it. I didn't like it. You know, it was really mm-hmm. abrupt and. I didn't like that. It's this boy about money and mountains. You know, I didn't get that at the time. Um, Even more so now. Like, when you look at Everest. Oh, it's a joke. Yeah, and I don't care. It's turned into a tourist sort of thing where people with a lot of money. Yeah. It's not even climbing the mountain anymore. No, it's actually. There's two ropes up. People carrying all your stuff, like, and oxygen. Yeah. They're almost just going up just to get that photograph. So, 93, how far did you get? So, 93... Still far, I got down and was carrying all the stuff then and I felt super fit. I was I was doing the runs with the boys. It used to be not the Sunday run club. Remember in Kilbrony the boys used to at ten o'clock. So I was fell running. It was the first time I sort of get into film. And I felt super fit. We were away for two hours at a time and you know we had a lost a load of weight and I felt really good and climbing good and it was so Get into bed, got the 23,000 feet on the North Call, come down, and then all the boys were scoffing Dawson, going, Banjo's going to run up this mountain for everybody. <laughs> and that's when he had the talk, we had the talk. Yeah. So I remember getting there, and I had all the gear, I had loads of gear, heavy stuff, and I wanted, this time I knew to go light and fast, but to acclimatise, the boy was saying, you have to take all the gear with you. And there was no porters going to do it for me. And I walked from from base camp to advanced base camp, which is 21 kilometers along the eastern Rundbuck Glacier. And I remember seeing Avers for the first time. He took a tear to me and I went, this is all my dreams that I ever saw. Yeah. And from the north side, it looks like the mountain. See, on the south side, it doesn't, you can't hardly see it. That's the mountain that it was in my, you know, the photographs and all the mm. history books and all. And I'm part of it. 
You know what I mean? And that was amazing for a fella came from a housing estate from the area and all of a sudden I told people that I, and this is my dream, like this is that. And then when I got there and got in it and got focused and it's strange, we bit all the two seconds, but it felt good. Got to the North Call and I felt, you know, boom, boom. And I wanted to, the boy said, why you don't need two tools? But I didn't want to be jumering all the time. I wanted to do my own wee thing and all. Yeah. And of course, I come down and everybody is going, that man, like, he should be in the team on Dawson, could have a word with you. And him pulling me to one side and always when I'm going, you know, that's as far as you're going. I said, what are you talking about? You told me I could go as far as I can. Well, you haven't got the insurance and you haven't done this and you haven't done that, right? And I remember bad temper, but I kept it in and so disappointed and all and sort of going, told me I could do this and now I've called your bluff, you know, and and Frank Nugent then, he was from Wicklow and he was coughing and spluttering and going, this is the last time I could be here and... I and me and Dawson, Dawson's the expedition leader, I'm the deputy expedition leader, and you have to do what we say as a team average. I, I, I was tempted then, because mm. I remember I was talking to a guy from Cork called Mick Murphy, and I actually met him about 15 years later, but going there, and he says, go on ahead, you want to do it, don't you? I, says, <laughs> I know I can do this. He says, I know you can do this. I want to do it too, and he was restricted. And me and him, 2000. And three, he climbed the south side and climbed the north side up to the summit. No but that's way. it. Yeah, it's funny. And then we talked about it a few years later. I met him in K2 and we had the, our chat about it. But anyway, it Ger McDonald was with him. Remember the lad that was killed in K2? Anyway, Dawson, there's no fixed line. There's no thing. Went up to the summit and back. And I always went, you know, fair play to him for that and all. But it was just annoyed that he was one. And I suppose when you look back, you see a fella that's 10 years younger and he... You're only a track and all of a sudden you're up to the North Con before you know it. Fuck this boy, he's gonna you know, you're not yeah. gonna you know and maybe I might have died. He, he was probably he was looking out for me as well because he might have like I might have went halfway up and fucking slipped off the thing or God knows what would have happened, you know. Especially on the second step, which is the technical part of it. And uh like it is what it is. But it was nice then after it and we had a chat and believe it or not, I didn't know this. He named one of his kids Rowan, and my wee boy's called Rowan, and that's just coincidental. Like after the mountain, you know the like Rowan comes from the red one in the clan, or else it's the the Rowan tree. You know the mountain ash. Yeah. And we had it in mountain ash, but there was a wee mountain ash out there. I remember thinking, I like the name Rowan, you know, and he was the same. So just small wee. Coincidental things, I mean, and we had a good old chat about it and all, and it was nice because I looked round the room and all the ones that I know, they're all in their seventies on. Nobody's getting any younger, like. Yeah. I was probably it's one of the youngest, that, isn't it? But <clears throat> it's, it's a difficult situation because you know, you feel fit, and you this could be my opportunity. That's it. And it might not ever come back again, like. Because you know I mean? roll on ten years later, mm. I was thirty five. When I got the opportunity to go back to Everest, and this time to climb it to the summit, now Richard Dugan, I was working in Chanak Moor part time, and Richard Dugan, two years previous, was in Chai Oyu, and a friend of his had fallen to his death, a wee lad called um, Cinnamon from Bam Bridge. 
fell into the crevasse and stuff like that. And on Everest? Yeah. No, on Chai Ayu. Okay. Chai would have been an easy enough mountain. It's like a warm up for Everest. And then Richard, I had this and he said that he was going to do Everest. And he just said to me, like, you've been there before and all, and your experience, would you like to join me? And that's like, there's me and you. Say, me and you are going for, we're working together this weekend. Now, it's very random because there's a pool of, say, 35 other part-time instructors. And me and him just happened to match up that weekend. We're working that weekend, Shannon Moore. And him sit down and say, here, look, have you mind that's ask you this? Would you like to go to Everest? This is like, hang on a second. You want me, because I've been there before, you've been to North Call, you know how this... The, there's a bear shaking the fucking woods. Are you for real? <laughs> and went, yeah. Would you like to join me? Of course I'd love to join you. He says the only thing is it's going to be this morning, big money. And yeah, I went, yeah. look, the, it was 100,000 punt to go to Everest in 93. And I says, forget about the circus. Forget about all that there. I'm not bad with auction. Because I was going cheap. I was going, I can do this here with no oxygen. And how, how much is it going to be? And he says, well, the way it works is uh, to get on Everest, it's $60,000 for a permit. But the Swiss team had 12 places. And they, there's only eight of them. So they've got four places there. And he says, there's, there's a, a guy that he met in Chaoyu that helped with the body down and the thing. And he does tracking around the Himalayas and he was called McGuinness. There's now a boy called David Sharp from England that he had met and got good friends with. Then himself, and then himself, he says, we can get it for about 10 grand each. Then 10 grand each. Everest on the cheap. Where would I get 10 <laughs> grand from? Like, you know, like, I wouldn't have 10 grand. He says, well, see what you could do. And I went, I'm going. That's before running, I'm going. And I don't know how I'm going to do it because I was still um, a fitter welder by trade. I'm going, how am I going to work this out? And then I remember going, right, sponsorship. Slowly but surely then, because I had a year and a half, to, you know, yeah. to organise it. I said, like, people these days, 10 grand is like loose mm -hmm. change. But to me, it was not. And then I says to Richard, I says, what way is this going to work with? Equipment, though. He says, no, I can get that. So he was getting the tents, and I says, I'm going to need, you know, the gear to get. And he went, well, you have to get that. I says, I can't afford that. And then he, we got a deal with Rob. And I says, Rob contacted me, going, oh, we'll give you a sponsor 50% of this. And I says, that's still too there for me. I don't want to, uh, they're going to make some boy, you know, give them the measurements for a down suit. I don't want a down suit. Because Kevin says, you only need a down suit for one day or two days of your whole life. And he says, break it up. Get the big down jacket. Get the down over trousers, you know. And then get a windsuit. And that, you know, it's just like a made of Pertex. And it sips all the way up. So you have access to things. And that's all you need. So I said to them, that cut off not 25%. So from 100% whatever, it was down to 25%. And then they got me a sleeping bag. That was for free. He managed to get sponsorship for that. And then 
he was doing all the hard work when I was just piggybacking. It was a lot of effort though, wasn't it? Trying to get all set up. Oh, and sponsorship. yeah. Sponsorship and all them. People looking websites. He didn't do websites. Yeah. Satellite phone. And stuff. I'm not going to bother with that yeah. shit. All he wanted to do was climb the mountain. And it was Richard that was doing all the sponsorship, doing all the chats, doing all the TV. I didn't want anything to do with it. So nobody sort of knew, which was easier for me then. A friend of a friend who got my free, you know, flights off, Aer Lingus flights and blah. You know, my sister works for such and such. He says, tell him that I want to talk to him and you can use my name and blah, blah, blah. And your voice will, we're sponsoring the rugby team. Or so just throw us in. All I need to get to London. So I get half price flight to London. Then I says, right, what about a flight from there? The Delhi and then Delhi to Kathmandu and blah 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 and all the rest, you know. That's how we did it. It was just, and then we get the Kathmandu. It was like barter, and I went, sure, we don't need a big lorry. So I went over to the Swiss boys, and Richard was, oh, he was too kind. Went, Lads, should we? We only need a few barrels here to shove on top of your stuff. I'll have to show you the slides. So they shoved. I had said there was only about, you know, there's only four of us, two barrels each. We laid in the hut with our food and <laughs> it took over the whole lorry. On top of there, so the lorry is twice as high, way up high. <laughs> and uh, you know yourself, and then it was the same with like, end of Tibet, and same I set up meeting the yak herders, and they were at the royal crack, and I went, La! I'll talk to these boys. But no, uh, no American, no English, no German, no, no, no. Ireland, we small, you know, trying to tell them that we're poor. <laughs> but anybody who's got an expedition isn't poor. Throwing the the, the multi millionaires go, million, more, me money, you know, all this. Yeah. No, 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 no. And the, how I bothered and all with the boys was I, um, Bridgedale was, had sponsored loads and loads of socks. So big socks for their tiger, big socks for, you know, ever since once underwater 60 million years ago. So there's loads of fossils, you know them fossils you open up and you see the wee... Yeah. Give me one of them for a sock. You know, <laughs> the boys are talking to my daughter. I mean, these boys, I tell you, you get more out of these boys if you give them stuff. And then, uh, like, it was 2003, it wasn't the big circuit it is now. I says, they're not really into the, the dollar and the hinge yet. I says, they're still into the barter boys. Right enough. I says, I'll give you them boots. I had a pair of uh, boots, like, boy pointing them. Like, you know, the scenes are, and all this was the track in. You know, I'll uh, take them there and give me that there and use it. And then, I'll yak, you know, and the yak herder, he wanted $200. I'm like, fucking no. Take a hundred. <laughs> and then, oh, and then, you know, this, that, and that. And then, we saw a few yaks, only with one bag from my expedition. Blah, blah, blah. Maybe, oh, really small bag. And then they were weighing everything, and our bags never weighed 25 kg. It was always 35 or something. <laughs> no, 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 yak. And I went, whoa, whoa. And I took off the R teams, there was a Marine team, the Russian team, lifting up, and they had only 20. I went, five, there's five, so that's okay. Like 30, <laughs> 30, okay, so we'll take out 5 kg, and, uh, and you know the way you ended up, and I said, we'll do that to them, all the fucking yaks at the fucking back. <laughs> you know, they would load them up, and I went, there's one yak, there's a, there's a yak, there's only got one side and pulling the boy and come here, come here. No, 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 this goes on here and and their main boss man was away and then you're, I says, see when the main boss man's away, we give him the hundred odd dollars. See when he's away, 
we'll go to them, we'll give them 20 and yeah. they're hard. And they'll, I guarantee they'll take No, they won't. So you know where you get the known, the same boy that I give the socks to? And you're going, la la la. You take that, 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 you put this on. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck, I told you, so next one, the boys are, yes, yes. I says, get the kitchen down. We were going to have an uh, kitchen up at advanced base camps, 21 kilometres at altitude. And I went, I'm telling you now, take the fucking tent down, shove in that thing now. Fucking, yeah. And then your boy, whoa, whoa. And then the now boy come up and give him $20 and he took <laughs> And that's how we did it. Barter everywhere you go. That's yeah, and it, it's it was class, and the boys laughing. You never get a race. That's half the story, like, isn't it? Really, that's it. It's all about you know this. You know, he would wear it up like this. This was typical because I had the boys. See, Richard, clean living, Margaret Hill lad, <laughs> and me, a rogue as ever was. What I went, he's going to hold up, and he's going like a twenty-five kg. See when he turns his back, we're putting two ice axes. In that rucksack, because we say, "I oh, will give you a lift," and I'll talk to him, and you. Oh, no, I can't do that. What happens if he catches? Catches, you just go don't. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm gonna fucking shoot you, like. And I went, "No, are you sure?" So I be talking away here, 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 and giving them, you know, chocolate, and they loved it. So put in the ice axe and the ice screws and the pizza, and then be full as fuck, and then. He'd be struggling and all to get it on, and then he'd get it on the fucking yagging. How, <laughs> how long does the whole expedition take then? Like, so you get to base camp. You walk in the base camp. See, it, there's two sides to Everest. There's a Nepalese side where you go on and you have to do the walk in, um, and it's a walk all the way into. Is it a brave long base walk camp. too, as well? But it, it can be a big long walk. And on the Tibetan side, it's a drive-in. You can drive to base right, camp. Yeah. And the, obviously, the Chinese occupied Tibet, so it's structured a wee bit better. It's right, it's right on the border, isn't it? Yeah, it's right on the border of Tibet and, and Nepal. So what you do is, we fly in the Kathmandu, then you go over the thing called the Friendship Bridge. The Chinese made that during the Cultural Revolution. We're actually going to take over Nepal, only the Indians backed them with a nuclear threat going, if you go in Nepal, we'll fight you. See, the, the Chinese took over the bat and then they were on their rampage. They're going to take everything that they can get by what they thought was theirs. Um, so you go in there and then the Chinese, there was a Chinese liaison officer and he's, he's Chinese intelligence. He doesn't want you, he wants you to go from there to there or any monasteries, you had to go to the monasteries that they took you to. You couldn't go to a normal monastery because you weren't allowed to, Books. We had a book. Somebody had a book of Lonely Planet, and he looked through it. Dalai Lama's face. It was ripped out of the page. Not like Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama was big no no. He was like <laughs> hitman to them. You know what I mean? And I had a hundred and fifty wee small Dalai Lama things. Boy says to me, "If you smuggle them in to like give him the last of it, it's like having a blessing and all." I remember the first time he gave it. The boy thought I'd give him a hundred fucking pound, and it. <laughs> Uh, oh, you're not like this. And get the Chinese started giving us what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. I got enough of him, but yeah, dead on. Just, <laughs> we're here to climb the mountain. Go on, telling us about his cultural revolution, about the Red Book and blah, blah, blah. Chairman Chai. Not interesting. And um, so all the way along, 
the Chinese sort of, you know, the, the baton, you'd see the part of the batons are into the butters and all, and looking at them, smoke every, everywhere, but I ain't had a top your boy. No smoking in the, right, no, 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 him smoking. No, I would, you know, but he'll stop the fight, I don't care. I can't, I get sick in the back of an old Land Rover, you know what I mean? Somebody smoking all yeah. the time. We hated me, and uh, this is China, I says this in China, this is Tibet. Well, he says, welcome to Tibet. <laughs> I, or welcome to China, I says this in Tibet, this is in China, this is Tibet. This is China, welcome to China, I says this is Tibet. And he looked at me, ah, oh, you are a reincarnation of a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> Or a bad dog, no, a bad dog. <laughs> um, that's what the reincarnation was. I knew he, he wasn't there. He says, you're a reincarnation of a donkey. And we're going to hear your sound. <laughs> and the boy's going, we're never going to get anywhere with your fucking... He's only waiting to buy something. Then I'm... Ha, 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 ha. You crazy man. He's is crazy, yeah. Dead on. Right, come on, let me see. Get on with it. Because they want to stop. And they want to stop at these houses that they want to buy stuff from. You know, your typical thing. And I went, listen, poor man, not American, not John, don't care. Way back, yes, way back, we look after you, way back. And I mean, but we wanted to stop at all these wee places along the way. And I got in, so you, instead of, you can drive, but I insisted that the first three days we want to walk. Mm-hmm. Because when you walk, you're acclimatizing. Yeah. And it was two of the boys didn't do that. And they ended up getting sick. The medic, Stephen Sennett. Now, Stephen Sennett was an instructor at um, Shannock Moore. But he was also uh, like a physiotherapist and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he was going to be our medic. And there was an, called, an English lad called David Dugan, I think. He was from Magalie. And he was a physio and all. And I was going, great, we'll have a medic and this and that. But it ended up, typical medics or doctors, they're the first ones to go down. Ended up getting acute mountain sickness the very first day, and it had to be um, immediately taken out. But he had cerebral edema mm. at 16, not even 16,000 feet of base camp. Just happened like that. It just it scared us all because it can happen that yeah. quick, you know. All of a sudden, there's a bit of a risk. Though. Yeah, and you know, the sad reality is, I felt shit. 10 years previous, I was the main man, hardly on, run up that north call. Halfway, I I knew there was something wrong with me. I met Lauren then, and Lauren was acclimatized before me, you know. And I was, I had to walk ten paces. And I headache thing didn't look well. I didn't know about Damax then or about any tablets. I knew about aspirin, knew about paracetamol and all the rest, but I didn't know about Damax, and I was afraid of it. You know, mm. take it for a while. I was a big learning curve, but I could not acclimatise properly. Did you take it on that? No. Then you didn't? No. Because you hadn't taken it before. I hadn't taken it before, and I, said, I thought I didn't need it. And it ended up... I every We all moved together then the first day. So we spent three or four days sort of walking a wee bit. And Demis says, right, we're all going to go 21 kilometres from the Rombok Glacier up along the East Rombok. Class, like, see the scenery and all. But I was saying to the boys, here he's going, hey, like I had a farce or something. I hadn't got the oomph, you know, yeah. that, you know, when you feel good inside. I couldn't go like that, you know, grit, you know, he's tantious. I felt deflated or something, and something not right with me. And it was taking me ages and ages, and I went, fuck, maybe there is something wrong with me. Because every time I walked to 20 feet, I was like, 
just wanted to lay down and sleep. I go, what the fuck's wrong with me? Like, and then it was one of the yaks and I took off my big rucksack and only left myself a wee rucksack. I was only taking nothing with me, just a bottle of water. Well, the darkness came down and it started to snow and I was wobbling and I went, you know the way, I, I just, maybe it's just because I'm just tired and excited. I remember sleeping and waking up in the snow they got there freezing and putting on my jacket. And it was along that Rumble Glacier where it's flat. So it wasn't 100% sure. And I could hear sort of the water. I knew it was running down. So I, it's up I'm going. And the, there's a place called um, Snow Nuns. Where there's like loads of snow. Where they're like forming triangles. Like they're called Snow Nuns. Walking through it there. And walking up and getting a wee bit in this place going. And then a bit of a storm came in with the snow and any footprints he had sort of seen a bit of the footprint yeah. and then it's the cap snowing and snowing and I had only sort of like goodies on and left my boots and I just took everything I just took everything on put goodies there just to walk up and then looked at the clock it's about 10 o'clock at night usually Jeez. went to bed at 6 it's 10 and I we out of my comfort zone cold miserable no food and whatever water I was sort of scooping up the uh, snow and melting like out there around the body and then I could drink it. But I knew not to eat snow it's a bad thing, you know. Yeah. So I remember getting up onto the thing and all of a sudden I could see this sort of light in the distance all over it. It was one of the yak guys. They can send, you know, they can put up a big sort of um, ute. Yeah. Amazing. They took me in and I'll always remember that a pot belly stove that the stove was there and it went all the way along and then up. And the heat, I remember coming from minus 20 into the heat. And before I knew it, I had my jacket off, my shoe, I was lying there. And it was like something, I guess, here that built up. And the boy put a big yak thing over me, sitting there like that. And then your guy said, yeah, yeah, it's a, I, I said, okay, just sleep tonight. And then... The boy woke me up and he gave me that hot yak's milk and it was rotten but I, I knew I had to take it and yeah. then he gave me some soup and I, I was going I, was, I couldn't thank them enough you know what I mean and I remember crashing out and I remember the next morning sort of it was a wee bit cold and looking up and at this stage the youth was all down <laughs> and they had put a thing a blank like a like an airframe over me and put it over until the last bit, and then they were taking it down. I was looking around, and they were just, "You okay?" And, and, and yeah, dead on, and everything was white, and it felt better. And I remember struggling up to the boys, and what the fuck were you? What happened? <laughs> and I go, "Wait for them." No man, say you would be bit, you know. You had a sleepover. And I was going, I felt really, really bad, boys. I'm telling you. And at that stage, um, the boys had a wee tent. Then you, you always need your own tent. And I would always tell people, see if you're sharing time, you need, see for big expeditions, you need your own space. You need that one tent for yourself and your own comfort. So I remember getting on and we sounds and all that there and, and sort of make the best you can do. But you're going to be there for a good while, you know, yeah. and the weather and stuff like that. And then from there, got to the, the bottom of the North Call a few times, couldn't make it. And I'll always remember, this is where it went wrong for me. Davy Sharp was a lovely lad. Now, Davy Sharp's the same boy who died two years later. 40 people walked over his body. You remember about this guy? 
On Everest? On Everest, yeah. two years after this happened. But was that part of that film, was it? No. Yeah, there would have been a film about it, yeah. Mm. Dan for Everest or something like that. Yeah, it was 40 period. He was still alive when they walked over. Anyway, right. it's Davey Sharp, really brainy five. He's your typical long, tall, goofy sort of glasses. Mm. I think he worked yeah, as a sa- sans sort of... Because there's loads of people giving off about it and saying, well, because some people just went past and kept them going up. Yes, that's right, yeah. And it was like... Nobody had them. You know... The whole ethos of about hunting each other yeah. and stuff like that. So there was Davy Sharon, he was a lovely lad, and you had Richard. And then you had Jamie McGuinness. I thought he was all right until... I remember getting in and he says, he was six foot three, six four, New Zealander. Thought he knew it all. Now, he was quite good. He was... He owned his own tracking company and he spoke a wee bit of Tibetan and Nepalese and he was great for the whole setup. But then he then turned around and went, you're supposed to be the main technical climber here and you're shit. And I just when you think you're down, feeling bad enough for yourself, there's somebody actually telling you that you're shit and why are you on this expedition? You shouldn't be on this expedition. I go, am I having this conversation? And I went, you're not even on part of this expedition. Oh, yes, I am. I am now the Sherpa. I'm your Sherpa. The whole expedition Sherpa. And I went, like, don't talk shit. Go away from me. What's this all about? And Richard says, hey, he wants paid as a Sherpa. And I went, hang on. He's part of this expedition team. And now all of a sudden now he wants to be paid as a Sherpa. But sure, he's not a Sherpa. A Sherpa is somebody from Nepal who lives at 13,000 feet and their name's called Sherpa. <laughs> and I just said, I know that. And he says, so what are you talking about? And it was that surreal moment we're going, have I just woken up in the, like a dream? Am I actually, what happened Richard with him? He says, I, you're, you're not going well. I said, I know I'm not going well. I'm going to sort of affairs or something with climatization to us taking away. And he went, no, you're not going to, you know, he, he doesn't think that you should be on the team, blah, 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 you know, and demoralised me. And I went, right, I'm a bit slow now, but I know deep down it'll fucking happen, you know. Wrong. But I says, well, what's happening? He says, no, I think I, we have money set aside, I'm going to have to pay him as a... I says, if he's carrying gear, you can call him a fucking porter, don't call him a shopper, for fuck's sake. And he's not my so I don't want him to carry anything, but... He's fucking pissing me off. He, did you hear what he said to me? And he went, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I went, right, there's something happening here, you know. And I remember then the next day, I'm going, right, I'm going to prove myself. Get up, went to go to the head wall of the North Call, get a wee bit up. Couldn't do it, boy. Right, I'm going to have to lay, I'm going to go back down to base camp. And that's what I did. I went back to base camp. And try to recuperate down there a bit better, you know. Meanwhile, yeah. they had established the North Call, you know, Camp 1, Camp 2. And at that stage then, they all were back down, say, two weeks later and going, we've well, everything sorted out. You're not, if you're coming, you have to carry all your own gear and blah, blah, blah. blah. I just I don't you worry about that. Still feeling shit like. How long have you been there at that stage? That must be about four weeks. Yeah. Four or five weeks. And I was going... And it was the start of May, and I was we there from the 1st of April, so start of May, you know. Then he says, fuck, there's good days and bad days, and he'll 
So the boys, the longer they run them out, and they were getting worse, and the longer I was running, I was getting better. Well, it still wasn't 100%, but I remember setting up my camp one, getting the camp two, and then coming back down, going, fuck, I'm feeling a wee bit better. And then, when I had come back down, they had their wee meeting, and then Jim McGinnis and things says, Love Banjo, you, the, the, on the 5th, what was it, the 18th or 19th of May, there's going to be a lull, a lot of people are going to make a move, and you're not going to be on the team. Wow. What can I say about that? I hope you enjoyed part one of Everest the Human Graveyard. I was intrigued how Banjo managed to pull it all together on a shoestring. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you tune into part two, podcast number 49, which will be released over the next couple of days. I just want to leave you with, it all started with a vision. Until next episode, stay safe and keep on moving.